Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Sometimes you just can't get a break. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are in the minors, there could be someone blocking your call-up. And when you do get called up, there's someone better or more established in your way. Of course, there are times where you can hit minor league pitching without difficulty, but you just can't hit major league pitching. At least, that's the way it used to be. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the careers of three such players, one of whom had a cup of coffee in the majors, but never stuck. Joe Brovian, Joe Bauman, and Bob Cruz. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join once again as we delve into the wonderful world of sports and talk about the stars of the game, so many of whom are long forgotten. And today, we're going to talk about the careers of three guys who could really hit a baseball. You know, September has been known as a time for young baseball players to be given the opportunity to prove themselves when rosters expand, especially when they're the property of teams that are no longer in contention. Of course, there are other times throughout a season when a player is called up and given an opportunity to show what he can do. But it doesn't always pan out. In fact, there have been dozens, and I mean dozens, of ball players who have appeared in just one game and never given another opportunity. There are those who have been stalled by the fact that a superstar is ahead of them and the major league team that owns their rights has kept them in the minors as an insurance policy just in case of injury. And then there are those who get the call-up and just don't play good enough to stick. Well, today we're going to talk about three such players. Joe Brovia, who was called up to the Cincinnati Reds at the age of 33, and whose best days were already behind him. Brovia appeared in 21 games, and that was it. In the minors, however, Brovia played 14 years, whacked 213 home runs with his high coming with the Portland Beavers of the PCL in 1950 with 39 to go along with 114 RBIs. Joe Bauman, the first man to whack 70-plus home runs in one season in professional baseball when he connected for 72 with Roswell of the Longhorn League, which was Class C ball in 1954. 
In fact, for his career, Bauman hit 337 home runs to go along with a 337 batting average, but he never made it to the majors. And Bob Cruz, who in consecutive years in Class C ball hit 29, 52, 69, 28, and 32 home runs, but he never made it to the majors. And we're going to talk about all three with Galen White, a terrific author who recently released a new book called Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, a wonderful dive back in time and an examination of baseball careers that almost were. Sure, while this might not qualify these three ball players as forgotten heroes in Major League Baseball, they were certainly heroes in the communities in which they played their minor league ball. In fact, Wes Parker, who used to play for the Los Angeles Dodgers, penned the forward in left on base in the Bush Leagues. And he was a big fan of the Hollywood Stars and of minor league star Carlos Bernier. And Wes said, players were not analyzed, dissected, and interviewed to nearly the extent they are today. They played, then disappeared, returning to the mysterious life from which they came. When games were sold out, they roped off the outfield and allowed us to sit on the outfield grass behind the ropes, close to our gods, so close we were within 10 feet of them. We could sense them, hear them, feel their energy. It got so that while driving to the games, I prayed for a sellout so I could share the same grass with them from close range. I think that's a really good description of what minor league ball was like back in the day. And the players were heroes in their community. And like I said, we're going to talk about a few of them on today's podcast. Of course, before we get into this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'd like to remind everyone that they can follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for our page on Facebook or follow us on the web at SportsFH.com. In fact, I encourage everyone to visit us there to learn more about Brovia, Cruz, and Bauman. Learn more about today's guest, Galen White, and to send us your comments about today's show and to suggest topics for upcoming episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Also, we love your ratings, so please, wherever you can, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Hey, we're also relaunching our Patreon page, and I need a favor from all of you. Please let us know what type of extra content you might want to hear. If you'd like to submit direct questions to our guests, what kind of contests would interest you and how we can make our Patreon page great, please let us know by sending an email to me, warren at sportsfh.com. That's W-A-R-R-E-N at sportsfh.com. Also, beginning with this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, We're going to read from our mailbag and tweets. That's right, your emails, suggestions, and tweets will now go live on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and we'll read them during the close to every episode. And as always, thank you for your support. Okay, today we're going to talk about three guys who could really whack the baseball. Joe Brovia, Joe Bauman, 
and Bob Cruz. All three possessed incredible power, but found themselves stuck toiling in minor league baseball for years. And only one of these guys ever got a shot at the big time. There are others in Galen's book whom we briefly touch upon, like Ron Nechai, the only man to ever, now get this, he is the only man to ever strike out. 27 batters in a nine-inning game. That's right. Every out recorded by the Bristol Twins on May 13, 1952, against the Welch Miners in a Class D Appalachian League game came as the result of Nechai striking out the batter. It's a great story, and Galen will talk about it briefly later on in today's podcast. In the meantime, let's first talk about Joe Brovia, Joe Bauman, and Bob Cruz with the author of a terrific new book, Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, Galen White. Galen, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thrilled you could join us. I'm pleased to be here. Hey, your book, Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, is quite unique in that not only does it talk about minor league careers, it really focuses on ball players who were, well, quite successful in one way or another. At least they were in the minors. And they never really got a chance to show their stuff in the majors. First, where did this idea come from? And second, how did you determine who to focus on? I grew up in Los Angeles when it was still a minor league town. My favorite team was the Los Angeles Angels. They played in Wrigley Field in L.A. Mm -hmm. I saw a number of players pass through there, including Steve Bilko, who I thought was going to be the next Babe Ruth. He had already (laughs) played in the big leagues with the St. Louis Cardinals in 1953. He had 21 home runs, drove in 84 uh, runs, and two years later he's in Los Angeles. And to a a nine-year-old kid at that time, uh, he looked like Babe Ruth. And I found out later that Bobby Rich, who went on the star in the majors Mm -hmm. for the Orioles and Mm -hmm. the Angels, he too... uh, saw Steve Bilko as a kid and thought he also was Babe Ruth. So mm-hmm. I wasn't alone. <laughs> how um, how so, did you determine who to focus on? I mean, there's so many great stories in the minor leagues. How did you determine who you would write about? Again, being in L.A. and L.A. being part of the Coast League, which was an open classification league and called by some uh, the third major league, uh-huh. I saw some pretty good players pass through there. So left on base in the Bush Leagues features four Coast League players. Uh, Carlos Bernier, Joe Taylor, Bob Dillinger, and Joe Brovia are, are the four. My original research, though, also included Steve Bilko. It turned out that I did a separate book on Steve Bilko called mm-hmm. the Bilko Athletic Club. I also interviewed, as part of uh, the work I did early on, Artie Wilson, who again became a separate book, uh, called Singles and Smiles. Artie Wilson was a former Negro League player, hit four, last player to hit 402 in baseball. He hit 402 at um, 
over 400. He hit 402 at Birmingham in 1948, where one of his teammates was a rookie named Willie Mays. So <laughs> these players were all on my list when I started uh, interviewing, uh, doing the interview work in 1974. I at that time, was going out to the ballpark quite a bit in Kansas City. I had started my career as a sports writer. Uh, by the mid-'70s, I was in the corporate world, but still doing some freelancing, and that took me out to uh, Royal Stadium, where I became good friends with a coach named Harry Dunlop, and the manager of the Royals at the time was Jack McKeon. Mm-hmm. So I shared with them what I was doing, and uh, Harry Dunlop suggested I write about Ron Nechai, the only pitcher in baseball history to strike out 27 in a nine-inning game. That's crazy. 27 strikeouts in nine innings. That's just, I don't care what level you're playing on. That's incredible. It it really is. And Jack McKeon had managed uh, uh, Joe Taylor. Uh, Joe was at the end of his career in Vancouver, but he had some uh, interesting stories to tell about Joe Taylor. So um, that's sort of how it got started. uh, for some people who might be interested, uh, I started work on this when, on a Smith Corona electric typewriter. <laughs> so that'll give you some idea how far back it goes. But the first interviews, um, I remember they were on the 4th of July weekend in 1974, and I drove uh, over to Amarillo to uh, see Bob Cruz, and the next day I was in Roswell talking with Joe Bauman. Wow. So this book, took quite some time to put together. It did. I went on in the corporate world. I became a speechwriter for several top executives, and uh, my time that I had to devote to writing was uh, minimal. I still continued the research. I retired in 2012 and decided it's time to to, uh, finish what you started so many years ago. And one of the reasons I wanted to finish it is that uh, during the course of all this, I remember watching a... uh, Anthony Bourdain show on uh, television, and he was interviewing a poet from Montana, and this poet had written a poem, and they had the lyric had the words "Death steals everything except our stories," and many mm. of these players by that time had already died, and I thought, well, <laughs> I better tell these stories while I'm still around, and sure. so that's what I proceeded to do. Well, it is a terrific book. And I hope everybody out there uh, gets a copy of it. And we're going to give you a little tease about it, beginning with one of the guys whom you did focus on, and that was Joe Brovia. Tell us a little bit about Joe. Who was he and for whom did he play? Joe Brovia was a character right out of Ring Lardner. And Ring Lardner, uh, some of your listeners may recall, was a great writer, in the early 1900s, he uh, really was the one who made the term Bushers and Bush Leagues most famous. He's uh, well known for the novel You Know Me, Al, and that consists of uh, letters from uh, Jack Keefe, a fictional Bush League pitcher, to a friend back home in Indiana called Al Blanchard. All six chapters in You Know Me, Al have the word Busher in it. Hmm. But Joe Brovia was right out of Ring Lardner. Uh, he was, uh, in fact, uh, dubbed early on as a young Smeed Jolly. Now, Smeed Jolly was the classic good hit uh, bad fielder. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, is best known. Um, his, his ability to chase fly balls was kind of compared with uh, someone uh, trying to catch uh, soap bubbles. 
He, um, <laughs> uh, Smead had trouble, and so did Joe. In his first pro game, he was 18 years old. This was in the Coast League. He broke in with the San Francisco Seals. His first pro game, he had three hits off the best pitcher in the league, and he also committed three errors. <laughs> so from then on, Joe Brovia was known as uh, a, a great hitter and a lousy fielder. And that later on, uh, well, the tag was with him throughout his career. When he finally did make it to the majors, his uh, manager in the minors, a lefty old duel, lefty had managed him in San Francisco, and he was the manager in Oakland when Joe finally went up in 1955 to the Cincinnati Reds. But lefty old duel told Gabe Paul, the junior manager of the Reds, you know, give him a bat, but don't give him a glove. <laughs> uh, so Joe, uh, Joe, of course, wanted to do more than just pinch hit, but that's all he did in the majors. He was up there 37 days. It took him 15 years to get there, but he lasted 37 days, had 18 at-bats, and then he was back in the Coast Lake. And that pretty much ended his career because it ended his dream. Mm-hmm. You know, in he played in the minors for 14 seasons. And, of course, like you said, that included the Pacific Coast League. And he spent a few years in the Mexican Leagues, too. Overall, if you piece everything together, he hit... 213 home runs, had a career high of 39 with the Portland Beavers of the PCL in 1950, and overall for his career, he hit 311. Now, you just said that you can get a label, in not so many words, and that label can stick with you for quite some time. So his first game, he has three errors, and he gets that label. Is that what truly prevented him from getting a real shot at the majors? Yes. Uh, it's like Joe said. He said, once they put, a, put the old tag on you, whoosh, that's it. And that, that really was because very early on, uh, Lefty became very concerned about putting him in the outfield. Eventually, Joe became an average outfielder. He, he got hit in the head more than once by a fly ball, <laughs> and he got injured crashing into the fences uh, uh, more than once. In fact, in Portland, uh, the sports columnist, one of the sports columnists there suggested that he wear a miner's helmet in the outfield. Uh, so Joe uh, was not a good fielder, and he'd be the first to tell you. But he was a great hitter, and what uh, really made him a character was he hated pitchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he said there was never a pitcher that he liked, and of course then he was reminded at that time that he was uh, rooming with a pitcher, and he said, well, that's different. But <laughs> Joe uh, hated pitchers. He called them all sorts of names, and uh, he, he just was uh, an intense competitor. He, he said such things like, uh, the best way to fly is to go by air. Another time, uh, he was uh, uh, suspended for spitting in the face of an umpire, and he explained, I was frothing. Some of the froth must have landed on the umpire. So he, yeah. he said uh, colorful things. He did colorful things, and like, again, he was one of the great characters of the of the old Pacific Coast League, but a great ball player, and that's the bottom line. In today's game, with the designated hitter rule, Joe would be a star. Mm, interesting. You know, um, he I guess he sort of had a, a couple of yogiisms in him long before Yogi was giving us those famous yogiisms. You just said, oh, yes. he, he, yeah. You, you just said that he really didn't like pitchers and you open your book 
or the chapter on Joe Brovia with a discussion about Joe's dislike of pitchers. Did he really not like them? What what was it about them that he didn't like? In the like? heat of battle, he hated them, and he called them uh, names names like syphletic sons of a <laughs> That's one of the kinder terms that he called them. Um, uh, one of the great stories about Joe was um, uh, he had gone hitless uh, one night in Seattle, sleepless in Seattle, you might say, and he went back to his hotel room where his roommate, Marino Peretti, a pitcher, was uh, to... Uh, Pearl the next day. So Marino was already in bed trying to get, uh, get some sleep. And Joe comes in and he's tossing and turning because he didn't get hit that night. And he's finally, he gets up, he turns on the light. Now, again, this is right out of ring Lardner. Ring Lardner once did a story called my roomie where one of the players gets up in the middle of the night and shaves. Uh, well, in this case, uh, Joe got up, he didn't have any clothes on. He often would grab a hanger and stand in front of the mirror and, uh, kind of check his batting his uh, batting swing, see what was what he was doing wrong. So here he is, standing naked in front of the mirror, and uh, he hollers out to Marino, who's trying to sleep. Check this out. Check this out. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> and so Marino said to him, uh, "Nothing's wrong. Your nuts are too heavy." <laughs> well, <laughs> so Joe, Joe, well, the next day, Joe went out, got three hits, started telling everybody that Marino had corrected his swing. <laughs> oh, man. Well, one thing about Joe, he could certainly hit. He broke in with El Paso in 1940 when he was just 18 years old. He hit 383 with 103 ribbies. His manager was a guy by the name of Speck Williamson, and he told baseball fans in El Paso, at least according to your book, to get a good look at Joe because it wouldn't be long before he was playing in the majors. Well, he was right about one thing. He wouldn't be around for long, at least in El Paso, because in 1941 he played in the PCL with San Francisco. So tell us about his first year with El Paso and then how he ended up with San Francisco. Well, El Paso, I had a working agreement with uh, San Francisco Seals, uh, and Joe uh, tore up the league. It was a big ballpark, so he, he didn't get that many home runs, but he got a lot of triples, which was saying something because he was a slow runner. Uh, Joe hit uh, nearly 400, and so uh, he was soon uh, playing uh, in the big league, uh, in the Coast League with the Seals. And the Coast League at that time, I mean, uh, just a few years before, the DiMaggio's had come out of the Coast League and gone into the majors. That's Joe, Dom, and Vince. Mm -hmm. And Lefty O'Doul had been the manager to all three of the DiMaggio's. So uh, here Joe shows up at the Seals Spring Training Camp, and and uh, for all purposes, he looks like one of the DiMaggio's. He's Italian, too. <laughs> so uh, Lefty, uh, actually Joe reported uh, as a pitcher, and Lefty told him to get the uh, uh, the metal plate off the uh, uh, front of his shoe, take it off, and he was going to be an outfielder. So uh, that was how he started with the Seals. Seals Stadium was a very uh, large ballpark, very spacious. Uh, Joe's power was to right and left center. He was a left-handed hitter. Uh, he was not a pole hitter. And so his numbers, when you look at his years in San Francisco, they don't show very many home runs. That's because 
some of the longest balls ever hit in San Francisco were the left center and right center. And Joe, as a matter of fact, hit one of them in a spot where Willie Mays uh, looked at it and said, that's a taxi cab uh, ride from home plate. And so he could hit the ball a long ways, but he was not a pole hitter. It was not until he got to Portland that he became a pole hitter and started to hit uh, the home runs. Um, he had an unusual batting stance. He held the bat down around his uh, belt buckle. He held it straight up, almost parallel with his nose. In fact, when he got to the majors, um, uh, Johnny Mize, a four-time National League home run champ, said to a sports writer, looks like that big guy, Brovi, is trying to hide his bat from the pigeons. So <laughs> Joe, uh, uh, Joe had this unusual batting stance, but it was a little bit, he could, he could uh, it was like cocking the bat, uh, and he could turn on a fastball. In fact, uh, uh, Chuck Stevens, who uh, I interviewed for the book, and he played with the Browns and was around baseball for a long time, he said throwing a fastball to uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Brovia was like putting a pork chop on the table for a dog because Joe uh, was as good a fastball hitter, in Chuck Stevens' opinion, as Ted Williams. Wow. He was just a great fastball hitter. He hated now, and this was his dislike for pitchers. Any pitcher who threw him junk, <laughs> then he got Joe's wrath and obviously a, a string of obscenities and other nicknames that he came up with for them. <laughs> um, you know, he spent most of his career playing in the PCL, and what I find interesting is this. Especially during his time, and you alluded to this earlier, the PCL was sort of like a third major league. How good was the PCL and how good was the competition and how did Joe hold his own against it? Well, uh, you know, one of the pitchers to come out of the Coast League was Larry Jansen. Uh, he pitched for the San Francisco Seals early on. Then later on, he returned to the league and pitched uh, for Seattle and he uh, went to the majors and was a star pitcher for the Giants for several years. So uh, there was a lot of good ball players who came out of the Coast League and, and went on up. Uh, when I was uh, young, uh, young enough to uh, remember some of the players come through the Coast League, I remember seeing Bill Mazeroski as an 18-year-old uh, playing at Hollywood in the Coast League. Rocky Colavito later on came through the Coast League. Jim Mutcat Grant. Uh, so there were some Good ball players, mm -hmm. really fine ball players who came up through the Coast League long before Brovia, but even during Brovia's time, and uh, you know, Minnie Minoso came out of the Coast League. Uh, so there was some a lot of talent throughout those that period of time, and a lot of these guys. Uh, first off, they made more money out there because the major league minimum at that time was anywhere between five and seven thousand dollars. Also, uh, the uh, the Coast League was more major league in some ways. Then the majors, by that I mean they were traveling by plane long before the teams in the majors were doing so. They were still traveling by train in the majors. Wow. The long seasons, uh, uh, the, the players uh, with the mild climates in the Coast Lake City, uh, it allowed these players to extend their careers. And besides, they just loved playing in the ballparks and mm -hmm. being a little closer to the fans and part of the community. Mm-hmm. Was Joe actually property of any major league team? How did the minors work back then? Well, the Seals, um, 
they didn't have at that time a working relationship with any particular team. You know, the uh, Joe DiMaggio went to the Yankees. Uh, Vince went to the Red Sox. Uh, Larry Jansen went to the Giants. Uh, uh, Gene Woodling, who played in, who had a fine major league career and played for a lefty old duo at San Francisco, he went to the Yankees. So uh, the Seals didn't have a working relationship. And when Joe finally went to the majors in 1955, he was playing for the Oakland Oaks. They did. They weren't connected with any particular team. Uh, what happened there was the Cincinnati Reds uh, were looking for a pinch hitter. The previous year, in 1954, Dusty Rhodes had been the star of the of the World Series, and of course, um, you know, pinch hitting has always been an art, and, and some of the great pinch hitters have gotten the recognition they deserve. But I think uh, Dusty Rhodes uh, uh, starring in that World Series in '54. Uh, sort of refocused attention on the value on pinch hitters. So the Reds uh, thought they were still in contention. They had some pretty good hitters in that team. You might recall they had Ted Kozuski, Wally Post, Gus Bell. Uh, they figured they didn't have any place for Joe in the outfield, but they did have uh, room on the roster for his bat. And when he got there, he wasn't all that thrilled with being relegated to being just a pinch hitter. Why did Bertie Tebbets take such an interest in him? Well, I think Bertie liked him. Uh, I interviewed uh, Bertie uh, personally. Uh, he was at Royal Stadium. Uh, he was a scout at the time for the Yankees, I believe. And so Bertie spent quite a bit of time with me talking about Joe. And, and I think it was heartfelt when Bertie said that he wanted Joe to succeed more than any player he ever managed. And I think Birdie really wanted to stick him in the outfield and put him in the lineup every day. But he was under orders from Gabe Paul to use him exclusively as a pinch hitter, and that's what he did. And no one else would give him a shot. I mean, was that really – was it a fair shot for him? No. Uh, now, this happens, but some of the pitchers he faced in those 18 at-bats, Warren Spahn, Lou Burdett, Hoyt <laughs> Wilhelm. <laughs> Kurt Simmons. Now, I haven't mentioned a Patsy yet, have I? <laughs> Baseball was was filled with some phenomenal talent during his day. Well, I left out Robin Roberts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get the idea. Joe, uh, uh, and, and Bertie mentioned it much, Joe didn't get any soft touches. But as Bertie explained, there was no way that he, you know, and he was trying to, help uh he was looking for various spots where he could use joe but the spots that were available to use him a left-handed pinch hitter uh were few and far between uh given that he was only there i think i said earlier 37 days he was in the majors 39 days so he was there for just barely over a month and in that time uh birdie uh, had to use him uh when he could and that happened to be against some of the best pitchers ever to play the game hmm you know, one of the main figures in Joe's career was, as you said, Lefty O'Doul. Actually, I did an episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes about Lefty a while back. And if anyone is interested in Lefty, a guy who hit 349 for his career, you can check it out. It was episode number 36. Talk about Joe's relationship with Lefty and how important it was and the fact that 
Lefty was actually none too pleased when the Seals got rid of Joe. Joe respected Lefty and liked Lefty, and I think the feeling was mutual. But what happened was the Seals were purchased by a gentleman named Paul Fagan. Fagan knew nothing about baseball. He was a multimillionaire. Uh, he owned uh, plantations in Hawaii, and he bought the San Francisco Seals team. Uh, he was more interested in uh, creating uh, nice dressing rooms for the players <laughs> and also uh, kind of hotel-like or five-star-like hotel uh, uh, restrooms in the stadium for women. And so he uh, uh, he had some very interesting – he banned peanuts from the ballpark, uh, by the way, uh, and that drew the wrath of fans, and he had to reinstate the sale of peanuts in the ballpark. He ordered Joe. Uh, Joe was a guy who wore his pants down around his ankles. Uh, San Francisco, uh, the cold weather and the fog oftentimes contributed to runny noses. Well, Joe didn't bother with a handkerchief. He just wiped his nose with his sleeve. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, Joe uh, chewed tobacco, and he liked to spit. Uh, Joe was not, uh, you know, he, he was your rough uh, ball player, he swore, um, he did things that Paul Fagan didn't like. And so Paul Fagan uh, really kind of set out to get rid of Joe. What it led to was um, uh, Joe was traded from the Seals to the Portland Beavers. Uh, Joe was asking for a little bit more money than Paul Fagan wanted to pay him as well. So uh, Lefty had to unload uh, uh, Joe. And so, uh, uh, as it so happened, the season opener in the next year, uh, or the season opener soon after uh, Joe was traded, was against the Portland Beavers in San Francisco. Well, Joe grew up in Santa Cruz, not too far from San Francisco, and he had a huge following that came to the first game, uh, the opening day game there in San Francisco, and uh, Joe got uh, two hits that first day. The crowd had signs calling Lefty Marblehead, and Lefty had been very popular in San Francisco up to that point, but when it came down to the showdown with Joe Brovia, he lost it. And uh, so Joe, uh, Joe uh, of course, had great success in Portland. Uh, it was all downhill from there on with, for Lefty in San Francisco. And uh, he went on, Lefty went on to manage in San Diego. He led the Padres to a pennant in 1954. Then he got a chance to go back to the Bay Area in 55 and manage Oakland. And one of the players he wanted to reunite with, one of the players he wanted to play for him there in Oakland, was Joe Barovia. So they were together again in Oakland, and it was Lefty who got him his one shot in the majors uh, with the Reds. Awesome. So he really was a very important part of the Joe Brovia story. Now, what about Joe's attitude? We've, we've, we've touched upon it, his demeanor. It got him into trouble a few times. And, you know, speculation being what it is, I've got to wonder if some of that was a result. Well, if some of it resulted in him not being called up to the majors. Is that at all possible that that his attitude, his demeanor um, prevented him from getting called up anytime sooner than he did? It, it's possible, but uh, I doubt it because even though he called 
pitchers' names, and even though he had, uh, uh, you know, he exploded every now and then, he was, um, uh, he, the players and the fans loved him. He was great entertainment. He had, a, he had this self-effacing sense of humor. Uh, he once uh, uh, kicked the clubhouse door in, in, in uh, Portland, and he got stuck. And this was while a game was going on. He had kicked the clubhouse door because he had lined out to somebody. So the Beavers, uh, his teammates, take the field there in Portland. And they look around, and there's no uh, – Joe's not in left field. And so they stop the game, and they start looking for Joe. Well, they hear him screaming up in the, uh, in, near the clubhouse door, and he's stuck. And they have to pull him out and put him back, uh, you know, back into the field. He did things like that that had people laughing. He was just, uh, uh, he was too much fun for everybody, including the umpires. They enjoyed him. Uh, he, he, I don't think that kept him out of the majors. I think in the end it was this uh, concern that he was going to cost you more runs than he could produce for you. But, boy, he could produce runs. I mean, this is a guy who hit some pretty prodigious shots, didn't he? I mean, in your book, oh, yes. you yeah. say that he was compared to the fictional character Roy Hobbs from The Natural. Talk about that. Right. Well, uh, yeah, the sports writer um, uh, in there, there was a sports columnist in Portland who uh, uh, likened uh, uh, Joe to Roy Hobbs. And keep in mind, that was just in book form. There was no movie at that time. Sure, sure. Uh, the movie, uh, the book had just come out uh, about Roy Hobbs and what later on became the movie. I might add that uh, you know, another fellow who sort of uh, was reminiscent of Roy Hobbs was Joe Bauman. Because Joe Bauman actually hit the lights out in a ballpark in Artesia, New Mexico. And we're going to and talk about Joe in just a moment. Right. But that's what, uh, uh, that's what Roy Hobbs did in the movie in terms of hitting the lights out. Well, Joe Bauman did that in Artesia. And uh, what the, the columnist in uh, L.H. Gregory uh, was saying in uh, Portland is that Joe had the same potential uh, of being another Roy Hobbs. Wow. Wow. You know, there are so many ball players who probably deserved a shot at the majors, but they never made it. What about Joe? Did he well, deserve a shot before his 1955 call? Oh, up? absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, one of his uh, teammates, uh, Mickey Rocco, who was a, quite a good hitter himself and played in the big leagues, Mickey Rocco was a teammate both in San Francisco and in Portland. And Mickey Rocco helped Joe become a pole hitter. But Mickey Rocco uh, said to some scouts who uh, approached him uh, after Joe had his 39 home run season in Portland, and uh, Mickey uh, strongly suggested that they sign him, that he would help him. So Joe should have been in the majors uh, as early as the early 50s uh, when he was having those great years in Portland. And, of course, he would have been uh, a much younger man at that time, and I think he would have uh, delivered exactly as he did in the Coast League. But you point out, Warren, something that I think is, is uh, important, and that is there's a fine line between success at one level and failure at another. Mm-hmm. And that fine line isn't all talent. It's often circumstances. It's, it can be injuries. It can be just getting a chance. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was that 
some of the things that I had read about uh, some of these players I feature, I thought was rather superficial and didn't really go into depth as to the players, uh, you know, their personalities, what happened in their careers. And what I wanted to do was to kind of do a deep dive into these guys' lives and find out really what happened. I want to understand. I wanted to understand what that line was mm-hmm. that kept them from that greatness in the majors, which some of them were capable of. Now, some of them may not have mm-hmm. uh, succeeded in the majors if given a chance, but several of them never got that chance. Sure, and Joe did get that chance. Whether it came too late or not, you know, that's that's all speculative. Um, but I wonder how much his reputation as a bad fielder from day one really hurt him. How should we remember well, that, Joe? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that certainly was the number one thing. I mean, he, I mean, remember, he was an 18-year-old and labeled as the next Smeed Jolly. Well, Smeed Jolly uh, uh, is quite famous uh, for being a great hitter in the minors. He won six minor league titles. He did have in the majors in the three seasons he was there. Uh, he did hit over 300. But Smeed Jolly was uh, such an embarrassment in the field. And the stories about Smeed uh, were not unlike the stories that circulated about Joe. I mean, the, the classic story about Smeed Jolly was uh, he played for the White Sox, and when he played in uh, Boston's uh, Fenway Park, he had difficulty with an incline there in left field known as Duffy's Cliff. And it went up about oh. 10 feet, and it was uh, it was uh, intended to be a, a warning track for the outfielders before they hit the wall. Well, uh, Smead had a hard time going up that hill. So his manager, Donnie Bush, at the time, uh, worked with him to uh, practice in practice to uh, learn how to go up that hill and catch a fly ball. And they worked and worked and worked, and finally, you know, uh, Smead announced, I think I got it. I think I got it. So first game... Smead goes to the outfield. Fly ball is uh, hit. Now he had been told to go run back up on the hill and wait for the ball to come to him. Well, that's what he did. But the ball didn't come all the way to him. Smead <laughs> had to go down and try to catch the ball. Well, what happened was Smead fell. He fell down the hill. And, of course, the ball dropped in. He got back to the dugout and said to teammate, well, they taught me how to go up the hill, but nobody told me how to come down. Wow. Wow. Crazy stuff. Galen, how should Joe Brovia be remembered? A great hitter. A great hitter at any level. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see him prove that at the major league level. A great hitter, a great character, and as likable a guy as you'll ever find. And a guy who loved baseball and loved to hit. Oh, did he love to hit. He lived for hitting. And, uh, you know, just the image of him uh, standing in front of a uh, mirror in the middle of the night (laughs) with no clothes on, a swing and a hanger, trying to uh, work out the bugs in his his swing, that right there ought to convince you that this guy was a classic and (laughs) one to be remembered. Sure. Sure. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on to Joe Bauman. And my first question regarding Joe has to be this. How do you hit? 
72 home runs in one season and not get noticed, or at least you're not noticed enough to be called up to the majors or at least moved up to Class B ball. How is this possible? Well, the San Francisco Seals, and this is uh, 1955. That's the year after Joe hit 72 home runs. The San Francisco Seals, which were in the Coast League, uh, by that time it was a triple-A league, they did um, uh, express some interest in Joe. Uh, they uh, supposedly offered him a contract. Uh, Joe uh, saw it as more as a PR gimmick and uh, wasn't interested. And part of the reason he wasn't interested was he had a very successful uh, gas service mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. in uh, Roswell. He, he operated a Texaco service station. He made more money from the service station than he did playing baseball. Uh, Joe liked it in Roswell. In fact, he would wind up spending the rest of his life in Roswell, except for uh, about two years when he went over to help his father-in-law out in Hobson, New Mexico, at a liquor store. But Joe uh, liked the small-town life. Uh, He liked the service station business. He had gotten into, uh, he'd run his first Texaco service station. It was on Route 66 in Elk City, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. He played semi-pro ball in Elk City for three months. They had a great semi-pro team there. And they brought Joe in, um, uh, paid him well, set him up with his service station that he ran with one of his teammates, and, uh, again, made more money there than he did playing baseball. He reluctantly returned to organized baseball. He had left uh, in 19, his last season organized ball prior to this was 1948. Uh, he played uh, in the Boston Braves chain. Uh, he was with Hartford in the Class A Eastern League. That was, except for one at bat at Minneapolis in AA, that was as high as Joe got mm-hmm. in pro baseball. Mm-hmm. He did not like playing in the East. He had 10 home runs for Hartford. Uh, his batting average was something like 278. But he, he just was cold and miserable the whole year. And, and when they uh, were going to cut his contract, by $200 a month, he told the Braves, I can make more money selling shoestrings on the street in Oklahoma City. So that um, left them high and dry. He went back to Oklahoma. Uh, that's when Elk, uh, somebody from Elk City had contacted him, a, a fellow who had played with him in the, when they were in the Navy together. And uh, Joe played three years in Elk City, uh, returned to organized baseball uh, in 1952 with Artesia, which is about 40 minutes away from Roswell. He probably would have stayed in Artesia the entire time, but it was too small a town to support a gas station. And Joe had always wanted to get another gas station after the success he had with the one in Elk City. So after two years in Artesia, and he hit 50-plus home runs both years in Artesia, leading uh, uh, the minor leagues both years. And earlier on in 1946, he had led the minors in home runs. So in 1954, he moves to Roswell. He gets the technical service station that he wants, and he hits 72 home runs. Uh, that broke the all-time record at that time of 69, held jointly by Bob Cruz and Joe Hauser. Joe Hauser did it in 1933 at Minneapolis, and Bob Cruz did it in 1948 at Amarillo. I might point out that on the night that Joe, on the day, uh, last day of the season when Joe hit, the uh, three home runs to break the record. They had a tradition there in West Texas, and 
eastern New Mexico called Picking the Fences. Yeah, and yeah, when yeah. a ball player would hit a home run, the fans would stick money through the fence. It could be one, five, ten, fifteen, uh, twenty dollar bills. Well, in Joe's case there in Artesia, that's where he broke the record that day. Three home runs, eight hundred dollars was stuck through the screen. Now, if you put that into uh, today's dollars, that's eight thousand dollars that he collected just from uh, hitting three home runs on the last day of the season. And that was probably more than he made in a month playing ball. Well, he made uh, what was top dollar for the league, uh, about $500 a month. Uh, he, however, admitted to getting some money under the table. He wasn't too specific where that money was coming from, but uh, uh, $500 wasn't uh, the max that he was getting. So you combine that with his Texaco station, Joe figured that he was doing better than he could on some major league roster. In Joe's case, I think you can uh, uh, correctly say that he lacked the desire to go up to the majors. First, mm-hmm. he didn't like big cities. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he thought he could make as much money in the small towns that he lived in. So Joe uh, was quite content to stay where he was. And uh, that kind of, after hitting 72 home runs uh, in 1954, and by the way, he did it in 138 games. Wow. And but, I might also add there were steroid-free home runs. So <laughs> later on, <laughs> later on, uh, Joe basically from then on uh, was just another guy there in Roswell. He uh, was uh, remained uh, relatively obscure until 1998 when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa had that great uh, uh, home run battle throughout the season and uh, focused attention again on Joe Bauman and his record of 72 now, Mark McGuire, of course, he hit only 70. He didn't make it to 72. But in 2001, of course, Barry Bonds uh, broke the all-time mm-hmm. uh, record of 72 for pro baseball. And Joe uh, uh, watched it on TV there in Roswell and uh, said, well, he figured somebody would break it. And, uh, you know, he was happy for Barry Bonds. But I don't think it takes anything away from uh, Joe Bauman and what he did. It was, it's an amazing record. And uh, he did it again in 138 games. And even though he did it at the Class C level, uh, that in some respects is even more remarkable because the lights at that level are not all that good. Mm. And the pitchers that he was hitting against, they were young and in many cases extremely wild. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Joe was walked about 150 times that year. Mm. So you get a pretty good idea that... uh, Joe earned his 72 home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, he getting some national coverage or remembrance when McGuire uh, was in pursuit of his record. But when Bauman was in pursuit of 70 home runs, he was also getting national coverage of some sort back then. Can you talk about that and whether or not any major league team took notice back then that this guy was pounding the ball like that? Well, he, and near the end of uh, the season, near, uh, it, beginning about in August, about the last month of the season, uh, the wire services started to pick up on it. And, and eventually, of course, when he broke the record, there's uh, a great shot that appeared in Life magazine at the end of the season. And it, it, it's in the book. It shows Joe picking the screen. Uh, there in Artesia after he hit uh, the 70th home run. Uh, but Joe uh, 
uh, no, I think uh, he he had already counted uh, when he was in Elk City. He thought his pro baseball career was over. When he came back and played in Artesia and Roswell, he figured that no big league team would be interested in him. And uh, when he hit the 72 home runs that year again, the only team uh, the, uh, that higher up that showed much interest in him were the San Francisco Seals. There's no evidence that any major league team uh, reached out to him. And as far as Joe was concerned, that was all right. Uh, he, uh, In fact, he wanted to quit after the 54 season. Uh, the Roswell management uh, talked him into playing one more year. He had 45 home runs the next year. That would be 1955. And then his last year in 1956, he had over the winter injured, uh, had fallen uh, in the snow and injured an ankle. And he quit uh, in June of the 56 season. He already he had he'd not played in that many games. He had 17 home runs. But that was it. He was quite content to go back to pumping gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it, that that's really hard for me to to grasp. I mean was baseball just not important to him? Was his time in the Eastern League that horrible or did he just accept the fact that hey, you know what? I don't have the game to make it in the majors. I don't think uh, Joe felt he had anything else to prove. I really believe that he, in his own mind, was quite satisfied with what he had accomplished. I remember uh, when I was in Roswell, Joe took me out to the ballpark uh, where uh, he had played. At that time, it was called Fairgrounds Park. It later became was renamed Joe Bauman Stadium. Mm-hmm. And it is still called Joe Bauman Stadium. And today, uh, there's a semi-pro team that plays there, the Roswell Invaders. And they wear alien green uniforms, by the way. <laughs> but Joe, uh, Joe walked me. We walked out to the right field fence uh, where he hit many of his home runs. And while we were walking out there, I asked him about a home run I'd heard about. And this was a home run hit in the playoffs right at the end of the 54 season. And it was uh, the 73rd home run for Joe in that season, although it didn't count in his record. But it was a um, monster shot that Tom Brookshire, uh, who grew up in Roswell, pitched for Roswell in uh, 1954 and, of course, went on to star with the Philadelphia Eagles as a mm-hmm. football player and then become a broadcaster. Yep. Well, Tom Brookshire uh, liked to tell the story about uh, Joe's home run that he hit uh, over the right field fence, and there was a rodeo going on adjacent to the right field fence. And the ball carried into the middle of the rodeo grounds, plopped right there, and the crowd stood up and cheered and waved their hats. <laughs> they knew who had hit the ball. It was Joe Bauman. Wow. And Tom Brookshire uh, uh, estimated that that ball traveled uh, in about 550 feet. And I remember asking Joe about that, and we were out by the right field fence when he said that. And he said, you know, I can pee as high up in that wall as anybody. I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> and I think that's really what it amounted to. Joe knew that he could hit the ball as far as anybody in the game at that time, including Mickey Mantle or anybody else. He knew that. And uh-huh. he knew, and he also had proved that uh-huh. in the places that he'd played. Now, if you want to say, well, uh, Mickey and the others did it in the major league level, and Joe did it on the minor, 
Well, Joe would agree with you. But he would also, I think, uh, point out that uh, doing what he did, nobody else had done it in the minors, and there were a lot of players who had passed through the minors. Sure. Before and after Joe Bauman, and nobody else did what he did. So I think Joe's right to be satisfied with what he accomplished. Sure. And you talked about it earlier when we were discussing Joe Brovia. He hit the lights out in Artesia, just like Roy Hobbs did in the natural. What kind of ball player was Joe Bauman? Just how awesome was his power? And tell us about hitting the lights out. Well, uh, Sports Illustrated, when they re, uh, reported on Joe's 72 home runs in 1954. And by the way, the same year, he drove in 224 runs. He scored 188, wow. and he batted 400. Wow. Uh, they, they called his numbers uh, Paul, uh, something out of Paul Bunyan. And Joe Bauman was Bunyan-esque. He was six foot five, 245 pounds. Uh, just a monster of a man, particularly at that time. He didn't have great speed, but he had. Uh, he was quite agile. And I remember one of the uh, people I interviewed was a bat boy who went on to play uh, uh, baseball and then become a quite a successful lawyer. And he was just telling me of Joe's athleticism. Joe would take batting practice uh, right-handed to, sh- to kind of hone his batting eye. Hmm. And he could hit the ball quite well right-handed. Joe, by the way, was ambidextrous. Uh, growing up, he was actually a right-hander. When somebody pointed out that uh, it was an advantage being a left-hander playing first base, he switched to being a left-hander. So Joe uh, was quite an athlete, and uh, whatever speed he lacked, he he made up with uh, uh, agility because he 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 really uh, could do some things a lot of people couldn't do who were that size. The story about the lights is uh, came from another bad boy. A gentleman named Ralph Nix, he's now an oil man in Artesia, New Mexico. And uh, Ralph was a part-time bat boy. His, his uh, father was a season ticket holder. So one day, the Artesia team asked uh, Ralph to be a bat boy. Well, he was just uh, intrigued by Joe Bauman. Uh, this was 1952. Uh, Ralph was just a kid, and he looked at Joe, and he, he, he just couldn't believe the size of the man. And so... He went up to him in the dugout one day, and he, he said, uh, have you ever hit the lights? And Joe didn't say anything to him, just kind of smiled and went on his way. <laughs> well, two weeks later, Joe uh, hit a ball that uh, smacked right into the lights there, busted him in the Artesia ballpark, circled the bases, came back to the dugout, walked up to Ralph Nix. His nickname was Skip, and he kind of uh, tousled his hair, and he says, now I have. wow what power that's awesome that's awesome all right so his best years came when he played for roswell where in four years he hit 50 53 72 and 46 home runs the fans in roswell loved him what was it like playing there well um you know, the interesting thing is that uh, Joe did this in 1954. In 1956, and I write about this in the book, Roswell won the Little League World Series. Hmm. And they won it because of a 12-year-old named Tommy Jordan. 
Well, Tommy Jordan's father was Tom Jordan Sr., who uh, uh, who today, by the way, is the oldest living Major League ball player. He'll turn 100 on September 5. Mm. But Tom Jordan had played in the minors 18 years, a 338 lifetime batting average. He hit 400 uh, in 1955 playing for Artesia. He was the manager of the Roswell team in 1956 uh, when Joe retired. Um, Tom Jordan, uh, uh, his son, uh, Tom, Tom Jordan was still playing at the time. His son uh, led the Roswell team to the Little League World Series championship. Nobody uh, expected Roswell to get that far, but Tommy Jordan uh, went, uh, pitched and hit the team to the World Series title. Well, what happened was... <clears throat> That, uh, of course, uh, led to Little League Baseball and Roswell becoming extremely big, and it killed minor league baseball in Roswell. Hmm. Attendance dropped to as low as 17,000 in 1956, and soon there was no pro baseball in Roswell. And what happened in Roswell also happened elsewhere in the minor leagues. And so when people talk about the demise of minor league baseball in the 50s and saying it was the fault of television, they're correct. It was also uh, uh, partially responsible was air conditioning because uh, people got comfortable watching television in the air conditioning living room and didn't want to go out to the ballpark. But another contributor and one people overlooked was Little League Baseball because Little League Baseball was just uh, was still in its infancy around that time. And uh, as uh, it got more popular, uh, people were going out and watching their kids or their grandkids play. And uh, they felt that was cheaper and better than going out and watching a professional team play. So that's what happened. A little league baseball really took over in Roswell, as it did in so many other small towns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Roswell is quite interesting. You know, when you talk about Roswell, you have to talk about aliens, don't you? And how about the fictional pieces written even by Keith Oberman from ESPN about aliens and baseball? It's a little fun, isn't it? Well, talk about that. Yes. Uh, Roswell today, of course, is best known for UFOs and for the, the uh, sighting of what some people thought uh, was aliens in the area around there uh, several years uh, prior to Joe hitting 72 home runs. Uh, I remember talking to, uh, I, for the book, I interviewed Harry Turtledove. He's a fine writer. He writes uh, alternate, uh, alternate history. Mm-hmm. And Joe, uh, Harry Turtledove is a big baseball fan. Uh, we shared uh, a mutual interest in Steve Bilko. Both of us grew up in L.A. And, and remember Steve Bilko winning the Triple Crown for the Angels there in 1956. And, and Harry also was a, uh, uh, fascinated by Joe Bauman hitting 72 home runs in Roswell. And, of course, uh, 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 Harry asked me one day, or said to me one day, he said, uh, what do you think of when you think of Roswell? Two things, Joe Bauman, 72 home runs, and UFOs. <laughs> so he wrote a story about the two, and he did a, a wonderful job uh, creating this uh, scenario where uh, these aliens pull into Joe's uh, Texaco service station to get some gas, and of course uh, they have uh, they had only four fingers. Uh, they had their eyes were kind of different, and you know here he goes in the great detail describing them. And they leave the service station, and the next time Joe sees them is after he hit the 70th home run, and one of the uh, aliens is 
sticks a hundred dollar bill through the screen, and Joe <laughs> Joe uh, sees the fingers that sticks it through the screen, and then he looks and noted, recognizes that this was a guy in the car at the Texaco service station. So uh, Harry Turtledove does a great story. You almost believe it happened. It's how good uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, he he tells the story. And then of course uh, the X Files uh, did a, a story uh, called uh, I believe it was. The Unnatural, and that was the name of the show. And they took the Joel Bauman character and they mixed it a little bit with the character of Josh Gibson. And they came up with this uh, uh, slugger named Josh Exley. And it's amazing if you listen to the dialogue on the show, uh, the Josh Exley didn't like big towns. Well, guess what? Joel Bauman didn't like big towns. And at one point, uh, someone said about Josh Exley's a record. He broke the record, by the way, a uh, home run record. Uh, someone, uh, one kid said to another kid, well, it's not a big league record. Well, all these are things that are right out of the Joe Bauman story. <laughs> sure. And so when you think of, when you think of uh, Joe Bauman, I think there's, uh, you, you don't just think of him as the guy who played baseball, but he has become almost this mythical character that that has been celebrated in a popular television series, uh, uh, you know, uh, and then also by a very well-known uh, writer in a story that he wrote. And then also add to that that the uh, top home run hitter in the minor day in the minors these uh, nowadays receives the Joe Bauman Award. So hmm. several years ago, uh, they announced that the, the, the top home run hitter. Chris Bryant has won it one year. I think the original one was uh, Ryan Howard. Mm. So now the top home run hitter in the minors receives the Joe Bauman Award, which is only appropriate because he not only holds the minor league record of 72, but four times he led the minors in home runs. Mm. What a great way to honor him. You know, the folks in Roswell really love Joe. And in fact, as you said, they named the stadium in Roswell after him. And he's actually buried across the street from the stadium. So why is well, it important yeah. we re- – yeah, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. Finish I, I was going to say, I'll, why, I'll, is it, why, is it, why is it important that, like I said for Joe Brovia, why is it important we remember and talk about Joe Bauman? Because he is, in effect, a folk hero. And I think it's important – to remember him not only as the great player that he was, but also to uh, uh, kind of celebrate the folk hero that he became. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that he's buried uh, adjacent to the ballpark, Joe Bauman Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, on one side of the highway, it's the highway from Roswell to Artesia, is uh, what is now Joe Bauman Stadium. On the other side is the cemetery where he's buried. Now, there's something unusual about that, and if any of your listeners ever get to Roswell, New Mexico, it's worth going to the cemetery. Because what you'll see there is uh, where Joe Bauman is buried, and usually there'll be some baseballs that people have placed outside his, uh, uh, around his headstone. But uh, Joe is shown swinging a bat. Now, the artist mm-hmm. who did his headstone made a right-handed hitter out of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, there's a reason for that, because the guy who had the headstone made was his best friend and another ball player and a pitcher. And he's buried one tombstone over. And he's shown pitching to Joe. And so for the rest of eternity, 
his buddy, Jim Aldrip, Waldrip, is pitching to Joe Bauman. And what I accuse Jim Waldrip of, he uh, died here last November, I, uh, and the tombstone was already up at the time. I accused Jim of turning Joe around to be a right-hander, so the percentages favored him more. So, uh, <laughs> but Jim Waldrop uh, was Joe's best friend. Uh, he was a tremendous source uh, for me in writing about Joe's later years, and was with Joe uh, when he died. Uh, and uh, he, Joe was a hero to Jim Waldrop, this man who. Uh, was around Joe's age and another Oklahoman like Joe. I, I just think it's uh, the whole thing, going to Joe Bauman Stadium, seeing a Roswell Invaders game they played during the months of June, July, uh, and then going uh, uh, to the cemetery. All those are well worth seeing if you're a baseball buff. Very cool. Hey, one last note on Bauman. In your book, you write that Joe said he thinks he made a pretty big mistake when he signed with Little Rock coming out of high school. That move to sign with Little Rock, which did not have any major league affiliation, when he could have signed with a club with major league affiliation, might have cost him a shot at a major league career. Did Joe ever talk about that? Was he bitter about it? How did he ultimately feel about that? Well, he wasn't bitter, but he recognized it as a mistake. A youthful mistake because he was just a kid at the time. At the time, he signed with Little Rock, and part of the attraction of signing with Little Rock was that uh, Little Rock uh, often would uh, sign young players and then uh, sell them to big league clubs. and And uh, it was recommended to Joe that he might go this route. Well, unfortunately, uh, the Little Rock ballpark uh, was like uh, Death Valley. It was uh, not a home run hitters park. And uh, so when Joe finally got a shot at spring training in Little Rock, uh, it uh, it was you know it was dis- and, you know it was not uh, a good deal for him. In fact, he did not do well, and he asked to go back to uh, Amarillo, where he had been prior to going to Little Rock. Mm-hmm. So he felt that going to Little Rock and that uh, sort of aligned him with the Boston Braves organization because Little Rock had a working agreement with the Boston Braves. And he did not care for the Braves, and in the end, he did not care for Little Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how he wound up uh, st- uh, spending uh, again uh, uh, the rest of his life in either western Oklahoma or uh, eastern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Galen, there have been some great home run combinations in history. Yeah, you had Ruth and Gehrig, the M&M boys. Heck, even had the Bash brothers, to name a few. Let's add Joe Bauman and our next subject, Bob Cruz, to that list. In 1947, Bauman Club, 38 home runs, and he had 127 ribbies for Amarillo while hitting 350. Bob Cruz whacked 52 home runs and hit 380. Unfortunately, as I was doing research, I really couldn't find any official records for RBIs listed for that season for Cruz. But I think one could definitely surmise that he had well over 100. How lethal a combination were they, and how did they get along? They were good friends. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, 
I started this book by interviewing them on the same weekend. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed Cruz first, and I went down to meet uh, Joe and Roswell, and 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 of course I plan- I went back through Amarillo. So uh, I took greetings from Bob down to Joe and Roswell. When I came back to Amarillo, uh, Joe asked me to pass on greetings to Bob. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were not, uh, you know, they they were good friends while they were playing. Afterwards, like most ball players. Uh, they kind of lost contact with each other. I might add that one time, uh, Bob and uh, Joe had gas stations on the same road there in Roswell. And uh, it's like one Roswell resident said, he had a guy who had 72 one year and Cruz who had 69 another year. He said, that's a lot of taters on the same street. <laughs> it sure is. But uh, they were teammates in 1946. In 1947, uh, in 1946, uh, <clears throat> Joe was uh, just out of the military. He had uh, spent uh, most of the war in the Navy. Uh, he joined Amarillo in 1946. He led the league in home runs. In fact, <clears throat> he led all of the uh, minor leagues in home runs with 48. Uh, Cruz uh, 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 was in the same lineup uh uh, Joe batted fourth. Uh, Bob, I think, batted fifth that year. The next year, of course, uh, Cruz outdid um, Joe in home runs. And uh, I believe he also outdid him in RBIs. I don't have the numbers mm-hmm. right in front of me. But he had two great years uh, in the lineup, and they were very supportive of each other. The thing is, uh, uh, until Joe departed, uh, Cruz was not considered a home run hitter. A lot of his home runs were line drives. And whereas Joe's home runs were towering shots that uh, just took everybody's breath away. Uh, in fact, when Joe, Joe was one of these hitters, when he came to bat, everything stopped in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People, if it was cons- people selling pop or beer or whatever it was, it stopped because everybody wanted to see Joe Bauman hit. Mm-hmm. Bob Cruz was uh, a great hitter, but he was a line drive hitter and he was not viewed uh, even by some writers who covered him as a home run hitter, until Joe Bauman in 1948 went to Hartford. So he was, uh, Bob Cruz was in Amarillo by himself. And that was the year that Bob Cruz hit 69 home runs and batted in 254 runs, which is still <laughs> an all time record. And it's an unbelievable number when you stop and think that the most, the uh, most uh, RBIs in the majors is Hack Wilson with 195, and if you're looking at recent times, um, Manny, uh, I think it was Manny Ramirez, has yeah. uh, the most RBIs in recent times, and I think that was in 1999, Randy Ramirez drove in 165 for Cleveland. So that number of 254 in 140 games is quite amazing. No doubt. Now, when, when Bauman left, Cruz actually flirted with 70 home runs. Like you said, he had 69 with Amarillo. But there are those who say he did hit 70, and an umpire, forgive me if I mispronounce his his last name, Frank Sicori, who ultimately called balls and strikes in the majors, ruled that a ball that Cruz hit did not clear a fence, and that ultimately cost him 70 home runs. Would you please tell us about that? 
Yes, it was about midway in the season when this happened, and it took place in Abilene. And uh, the official score for the game happened to be the official score for the league. Uh, the league uh, was the West Texas New Mexico League, and the official score was a gentleman named Bill Chick, highly respected. Uh, Bill Chick, Chick uh, always believed that it was a home run. In fact, uh, mid-season, he wrote a letter to a sports columnist in Amarillo, uh, expressing the uh, concern that it might, in the end, cost Bob Cruz the record. And he was hoping it would not come down to that. It did. Last day of the season, there was a doubleheader in Amarillo. Uh, Bob Cruz had 69 home runs. He needed one home run in the doubleheader to hit the magic 70 mark. Nobody had uh, reached. That was like the moon at that time. Nobody had been there. In fact, uh, Wheaties uh, had mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. already approached Bob Cruz and his wife about uh, putting Bob on the on the front of Wheaties boxes if he broke the record. Well, Bob went out that day, and the previous day he had tied the record, uh, and the wind was blown out. On this particular day in Amarillo, the wind was blown in, and instead of getting a home run, he had four singles. He had no home runs. He ended the season with 69 home runs. His image was never on the front of a Wheaties box. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. So, so in a way, Frank Sicori really affected the popularity of Bob Cruz intentionally. No, unintentionally. Yeah, he saw it differently than basically everybody else in the ballpark. Well, that's, this is true, and uh, there were fans who, and even one of the opposing players, uh, said that the ball had gone out of the ballpark. Um, Bob Cruz, uh, his nickname was uh, one of the great nicknames, Round Trip. He uh, became known as the Babe Ruth of West Texas. And because uh, of the, you know, the ballpark in Amarillo was considered a band box, and of course, Amarillo is um, out in the panhandle there, and there's a lot of wind. And a lot of people uh, uh, felt that his uh, number of home runs, 69, uh, was attributed more to the wind than maybe Cruz himself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. again, the wind, uh, the wind giveth and the wind taketh away. Sure. And that's what happened to Bob Cruz on the last two days of the season. And I think everybody who saw him play that year, uh, believe that he he was just in a zone. Uh, it was an amazing record that he set. He uh, uh, he, he batted four four oh four that year, and by the way, that was only third best in the league. Yeah, I read that. That's um, crazy, and and that's something that yeah. uh, that you talk about is that he wasn't just a home run hitter; he was a good contact hitter too. I mean, he had averages of three eighty, four oh four, three sixty five. Right. He could make contact. Well, you know, in the year that he hit uh, 69 home runs, this is an amazing number. Eight of Cruz's homers in 48 were grand slams. Eight grand slams. Twelve came with two runners on base, and 26 with one runner aboard. Wow. So his home runs alone produced 143 runs. Wow. That's a <laughs> Wow. I mean, and that, I mean, that's amazing numbers. Now, interesting thing about Bob Cruz, he started his career as a pitcher. 
and he actually won 20 games in the West Texas and Mexico. League. Yeah, I wanted to ask he, uh, about that because he 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 first came up as a pitcher and had three fingers or thereabouts. Talk right. about that. Talk about what happened to well, him and he, what kind of a ball player he was. He had uh, lost the finger. Um, I'm, I'm a little hazy right now. He lost, he lost the finger when he was younger as a kid. And uh, I believe it was in an accident on the farm. And he, so he learned to throw with the three fingers and uh, became a, a good pitcher, uh, sort of a Mordecai Brown of the minors at that time. And, in fact, uh, uh, the Boston Red Sox uh, uh, promoted him, uh, uh, took him up to the higher minors as a pitcher. Uh, but he wound up, he was sitting in the dugout one day. He was still the property of the Red Sox. And a line drive was hit into the dugout and hit his pitching arm. And uh, it, it injured the arm, and he never was the same again as a pitcher. So during the war years, uh, he was stationed there in Texas and he played on a baseball team and he made a hitter out of himself. And so when he came back into the West Texas, New Mexico league, he was signed by a former Yankee who was the owner of the club. And early on the manager of the club, Bob seats, uh, an outstanding, uh, minor league player and a, and a pretty good major league player. So Bob seeds, uh, signed, uh, uh, Bob Cruz. And he also signed Joe Bauman and had them in the lineup together for two years, 1946 and 47. What was the knock on Cruz? What prevented him from advancing to the majors? Well, here again, um, the feeling was, and, and the, it's often mentioned that P, uh, Joe Bauman maybe had a, had a hole uh, in the strike zone that pitchers could get him on. Uh, left-handers gave Joe some problems. Uh, in the case of Bob Cruz, uh, Bob Cruz was a bad ball hitter, and uh, if you threw a ball right down the middle of the plate, it sometimes gave him a problem. Uh, he was a free swinger, and he would tell you that he could hit bad pitches easier than he could hit a strike. Hmm. So uh, it may well be that, uh, again, that Cruz had this uh, – uh, he was vulnerable uh, to uh, certain pitches and uh, didn't uh, go any higher. He def- definitely had the drive. I don't think he, he he was a little more driven than Joe Bauman. Uh, Bob Cruz did not have uh, a gas station uh, to fall back on. He did later on work at gas stations, but when he worked at these gas stations, it was more for survival purposes. Um, Bob Cruz never quite got over uh, falling short of the 70 home runs. Hmm. He felt that... Um, uh, while he didn't think it was intentional, he felt he was cheated out of that seventh home run. Uh, he felt that it deprived him of opportunities, such as being on the front of the Wheaties box and perhaps an opportunity to move up uh, higher in the minors. And then he was, of course, property of uh, uh, the Little Rock organization, and uh, he didn't trust the owner of the Little Rock uh, team, a guy by the name of Ray uh, Winder, he didn't uh, uh, trust him much, and neither, by the way, did Joe Bauman. So um, uh, you might say uh, Bob was kind of out to lunch. He, there was no place for him to turn. You didn't have the choice at that time of going just anywhere and playing. You belong 
to certain teams. And in Bob Cruz's case, after the 48 season, he had actually signed to play for Elk City. He was going to go semi-pro and play for Elk City uh, when uh, Roswell offered him a position as player manager. So he wound up going and playing for Roswell. Now, Bob Seeds, who owned his contract, figured, uh, hey, you know, this was a good opportunity for him. He wasn't going to hold him back. So uh, uh, Bob Cruz went to Roswell, was player manager, did not have much success as a manager. He wound up playing in uh, uh, there in Roswell and then later on in San Angelo, bounced around the West Texas, uh, New Mexico League a few years before he finally uh, flamed out. But Bob uh, never really got over uh, falling short of the 70 mark. Uh, when it was pointed out that he had this record that was going to last forever, the RBI record, yes, he was proud of that, but he, he he considered the home run mark to be of greater importance. He liked to say, mm-hmm. well, people don't remember how many RBIs you drove in. They do remember how many home runs you hit. Sure, sure. Um, I got one more for you, and I'm not going to get this the pronunciation right. So let's just do it this way. 27 strikeouts in a nine-inning game. Tell us about that. Well, you could, yeah. All right. Well, the way you pronounce his last name, it's Ron Nechai. Ron Nechai. Right. It's N-E-C-C-I-A-I. Now, if you had called him Necktie, then you would have been in the company of Dizzy Dean, (laughs) who called him Necktie. Uh, Dizzy Dean was doing the Game of the Week in 1952, and when he heard about Ron Nechai striking out 27 in a nine-inning game, and, of course, Dizzy Dean uh, thought that was pretty fair country pitching and, uh, and mentioned it on the game of the week. Uh, Ron Nechai did this in uh, Bristol, Virginia, in the Class D Appalachian League. In 45 and two-third innings at uh, Bristol, he struck out 109 batters. Well, that got the attention of Branch Rickey, uh, the president of the Pirates, and uh, they promoted uh, Ron and his catcher, Harry Dunlop. Uh, Harry, by the way, in the first his first uh, two weeks as a catcher in pro ball, caught three no hitters. He wow. caught the twenty seven strikeout struck caught twenty seven strikeout game by Ron Nechai. And and while it was a no hitter, it was not a perfect game. There were there was a error in the game. There was a pass ball, so contact was made. But because of the pass ball, uh, he, he faced another batter and struck out 27. But he went, went on to Burlington, North Carolina, and again uh, uh, had a prolific uh, strikeout mark there. Struck out 172 and 126 innings. Uh, this was in Class B Burlington. Harry Dunlop accompanied him there. And then uh, in August of 1952, the Pirates brought him to the majors. And uh, his catcher was Joe Graziola, and uh, Ron was uh, uh, jo- Ron was about six foot five, 180 pounds. And Joe liked to joke, uh, "Who hung the uniform on the mound?" Uh, because Ron was so skinny. <laughs> he also had ulcers. Um, Joe said, uh, uh, "You know, he-, he was so shaky out there. I didn't know whether he was shaking me off or not." But uh, Ron uh, had a one-six record. With the Pirates, uh, he actually pitched better than their record would indicate. But that was a that was a horrible Pittsburgh Pirate team. They won only 
40 games that season. They lost uh, 100. They lost 124, I believe it was. Uh, trying to remember, they they won only 40 games on 154 game season. So I'll let you do the math. That but, means they uh, went one, one. That means they went 40 and 114. Right. And so uh, the, the the team was nicknamed the Ricky Dinks because they had so many young players, and uh, they were um, uh, so inexperienced, and in many cases, bad players. But Ron uh, Branch Ricky, uh, years later, was asked to name uh, an all all time team of players who had played for him at St. Louis, Brooklyn, and Pittsburgh. And what he said was, the greatest all-around pitcher I ever saw never was a major league regular. He had the best fastball. He had all the learning aptitudes. He was great. And then he named Ron Nechai, and nobody knew who he was saying. <laughs> uh, in the book, there's a picture of Joe Graziella with uh, Ron Nechai, and he has signed the pitcher, and he writes on the pitcher, best pitching prospect I ever saw. He would have been as big a winner as ever picked up a baseball had not had he not been hurt. Now, that's what he said about Netchai, and on the pitcher he wrote that he would have been a star in the big leagues if he hadn't hurt his arm. Ron went, was drafted at the end of the 52 season. He already had ulcers. Uh, the ulcers became uh, worse in his three months in the Army. He was discharged. Uh, he started to throw a little too soon after being discharged and hurt his arm. He never made it back to the majors. Mm, mm. But tell us about that game in which he struck out 27. Well, uh, yeah, in the game, uh, he uh, Bill Bell, and I mentioned earlier that Dunlop caught three no-hitters in a 14-day period. Well, the other two no-hitters uh, were thrown by a pitcher named Bill Bell, and uh, a hard-throwing pitcher who also jumped from Class D all the way to the majors that year. But uh, in that game, uh, during the game, Bill Bell, uh, Ron had reported to the ballpark that day uh, feeling as if uh, he, he was sick, and he told his manager, George Latour, that he wasn't sure he could pitch. Well, uh, George had uh, another pitcher ready to go, and uh, then finally Ron said, I want to try it. So during the game, Bill Bell was taking – uh, some uh, pills out to the mound for uh, Ron to take and kind of calm his stomach. In between innings, he was eating cottage cheese and Melba toast uh, to kind of, again, calm uh, the ulcers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the game, there was a pass ball uh, on a strikeout in the ninth inning, and that, of course, resulted in a four-strikeout inning because he got the next guy. Uh, there were um, <laughs> So he struck all, out 28. four. Right. Well, now it's 27 because, well, the, what had happened earlier in the game, the four guys had reached base. So one reached on a walk, uh, one got hit by a pitch, and one reached on an air, and the other by a pass ball. So four mm-hmm. runners uh, reached base, but because of the pass ball situation, right, right. that resulted in a four strikeout inning and allowed Ron to make it to 27. Right. Wow. Wow. That's just wow. And everyone could read more about Ron and everybody else we've discussed in your book, Left on Base in the Bush Leagues. Of all the players you wrote about, 
Whose story surprised you most? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, one, I, uh, I mentioned that early on I interviewed many of these players. Uh, there are a couple of players featured in the book that uh, I didn't add until later. And one of them was Pat Stacy. And he was a player manager and part owner in the team in Big Spring, Texas. Mm-hmm. And they became known as the Yankees of the lower minors. And that's because Pat Stacy, he had connections with the Worston Senators, uh, who were already bringing to the States Cuban ballplayers. Well, Pat got in on that, and he brought over a period of time 200 Cubans to the U.S. to play minor league baseball. He managed in Big Spring from 1947 through 1952. He uh, uh, won two pennants, finished second three times, third on another occasion. One of the uh, Cuban pitchers that he brought in was Camillo Pesqual, who went on to become uh, a, a quite good um, uh, pitcher in the American League. Another one was Mike Fernias, who had a very fine career with Boston. I think won something like 60 games in the majors. Uh, a shortstop that he brought in was Ozzy Alvarez. So Pat Stacy brought all these Cubans in. In many cases, Pat Stacy was the only non-Cuban on the team. Now, there were other teams that were bringing Cuban players in. There were some teams in Oklahoma, and there were some other teams in the same league that uh, Pat Stacy was in, the Longhorn League, that were bringing in uh, minor league players. But uh, uh, Pat Stacy. Well, he didn't speak Spanish. He had a, uh, uh, a personality that was perfect for handling, in some cases, some hot-tempered Cuban players. He knew how to get along with them. He knew, uh, in fact, there was one Cuban player uh, named Al Valdez, and Al was all upset one day about not getting a hit, and he was sitting in a dugout, and and uh, uh, Stacy went over to check on him, and, and Al said through uh, a translator that, uh, it was his bat. He, something was wrong with his bat. Well, Pat didn't say anything to him except he took his bat. Next time up, he went to the plate and hit a triple. He returned to the dugout, handed the bat to Valdez, and said, it's not the bat. <laughs> That's awesome. Really awesome. Now, Stacy, by the way, was uh, the manager at Roswell in 1954 when Joe Bauman broke the record. Uh, that is often overlooked. And Pat Stacy batted behind Roswell, uh, behind Bauman in the Roswell lineup, and that made a big difference. Uh, while they still uh, walked Bauman uh, uh, every chance they got, they, uh, they had to deal with Pat Stacy uh, batting behind him. So Pat Stacy was an outstanding manager. He was, uh, uh, knew how to deal with people quite well. Uh, again, he brought close to 200 Cubans to the U.S. Many of those Cubans uh, stayed in the U.S., learned the language, became very productive citizens. One of them I write about in the book, Tito Arancibia. He is still living today. Uh, Tito, in turn, brought 37 family members out of Cuba, escaping Castro. So the story about Pat Stacy is not only a great uh, baseball story, but it's a great humanitarian story because he brought Cuban players to the States and gave them a chance at freedom and gave them a chance at a much better life. And so I think Pat Stacy uh, 
would be that surprise you asked me about. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got into this, I didn't know about Pat Stacy. Uh, I kept reading in about these Cuban players and the, this Cuban team in Big Spring, Texas. And the more I dug into it, and then interviewing a couple of the Cuban players, the more amazing a story that it is. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Galen, I would love to talk to you about everyone you wrote about, but if we did, then no one would buy your book. Where can they go out and get <laughs> Left on Base in the Bush Leagues? Well, the easy answer is Amazon.com. The more, uh, the cheaper answer is the Roman and Littlefield uh, website. If they go to my website, GalenWhiteBaseball.com, and Galen is spelled G-A-Y-L-O-N, White baseball.com and click on orders then they'll see an orders page and that page will have the information they need uh readers need to get a 30 percent discount that takes the retail price of 36 dollars down to 25.20 and then for an additional five dollars shipping you can get the book for 30 dollars and 20 cents so that's that's a good deal if they uh, want to? I'll go ahead and tell you if they want to reach out to me at Galen White at Gmail dot com. Uh, I will make a book available uh, to them for thirty dollars uh, plus three dollars shipping, and I'll sign it. So uh, those are the deals available. Awesome, Galen! Thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Your passion for this subject certainly came out during. Uh, during our show today, and I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, I'd like to, if I may, just add one thing, Warren. Sure, sure. really touches on all the books that I've written, because they all go back to this period of time that many of us refer to as the golden era of baseball. And I had one player write this to me in a letter, and I have it written, I have it on my wall. It says this, what would life be if it weren't for the remembrances? We have the future of which we know nothing. We have the present, which is so close and moving so swiftly by that we can't make much of it. But the past is as clear as our memories will allow. It is the memories of the past that convince me how important what I am doing is in the present. Mm. And that's why I'm writing these books, and that's why I urge readers uh, to uh, read one of them or read all of them, and uh, they might be surprised of all the memories it brings back and hopefully fond memories. Awesome. That is that very well written, very well said. And, Galen, I hope you would consider coming back again. Anytime, Warren. Terrific. Galen, thank you so much. Thank you. Brovia's major league career actually consisted of 21 games in which he made 20 plate appearances. He hit 111 and knocked in four runs. Not much of a major league career, but in the minors, it was a lot different where he hit 311 over 14 years of play. As for Joe Bauman, he hit 337 during his nine year career with 337 home runs and 1,057 RBIs, although those RBI stats might be incomplete. There might be a lot more than that. And for whatever reason, the stats on Bob Cruz are disappointingly 
incomplete. But from what has been compiled, we can see that Cruz clubbed 196 home runs, including 69 in that magical year of 1948, when he also hit 404. Oh, and Ron Nechai, he pitched part of one year with the Pirates going 1-6 and six in 12 games, nine of which he started. There were, and still are, so many great minor league ball players who, for whatever reason, never got a chance to play in the big show. And even though they didn't, they certainly enjoyed some pretty special years in the small communities in which they played. And like Wes Parker wrote in the forward to Galen's book, they were like gods, majestic, young, and supremely skilled. Okay, time to open up the mailbag. A few episodes ago, we talked about the career of a terrific golfer, Ray Billows, the only man to ever lose in the final match of the U.S. Amateur three times. Of course, in order to make it to the finals three times, you've got to be good. And Ray was much more than good. This note comes to us on Twitter from Bill Bogle Jr. at Bogle Photo. I hope I got that right. Anyway, here's his tweet. Few know that Ray wore two gloves long before Tommy Two Gloves made it a fashion statement. Well, that's a fact Tom Buggy and I never discuss. Thanks for the info, Bill. And this from David Bellin, who sent us a note on SportsFH.com. David suggests we do an episode about Harry Aganis, who played first base for the Red Sox in 1954 and 1955. Harry was a terrific athlete who played in 132 games for the Bo Sox in 54 and was having a really good season in 55, batting 313 through 25 games when he became ill, never recovered, and passed away. David, thanks for the info, and we will certainly consider Harry for a future episode. Please keep sending suggestions to us. Just go to sportsfh.com and click contact us. We'd love to hear from you, or send us a note on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Once again, I'd like to thank today's guest, Galen White, author of Left on Base in the Bush Leagues. And as always, thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.